This morning, we come to what is one of the most disputed passages in the entirety of our Bibles. In fact, we're going to spend the next few weeks in what is called the Olivet Discourse, which is frequently a point of controversy and frequently a point of confusion and frequently a point of just utter chaos in all of the kingdom of God. But we're not going to dodge it. We're not going to dodge it. If you're new to our church family, then one of the promises that we always make to you is that we're going to preach through books of the Bible. When we come to hard words, when we come to difficult passages, when we come to troubling things, we're not going to pretend as though they aren't there. Because in 2 Timothy, God's word says of itself that it is all contains the breath of God and that it is all helpful to us and profitable for us and useful for us. And so we know that even when we come to disputed passages, even though, even when we come to passages that, that perhaps confront us uniquely or perhaps confuse us sometimes, that those passages contain the glory of Christ and those passages contain things that we need. And that's why God has given it. Now, the very task of preaching, the very definition of preaching requires the preacher to take a position and then to preach that position, to preach that interpretation, to preach that text with all of his might. And that is what I'm going to do this morning and over the weeks to come. But I do that in light of a humility that comes in knowing that there are men that I love and that I treasure, men that I have the utmost respect for. Frankly, men that are a lot smarter than me and a lot more qualified with me, than me that disagree with where I stand. Because this, again, is a position in which, a, a, a passage in which there are, are multiple different views and multiple different positions. And so we come together as a church family and I come together as a preacher humbled by that reality, preaching from that position of humility. And I, I pray that you would pray for me and that you would receive it in this type of, hu of humility. And even if you disagree with me on something, even if we don't come eye to eye on the entirety of the interpretation of this text, that we could continue in charity with one another. Because being a disputed text, it is also a text that does not affect our salvation, that does not affect our view of the church, that does not affect so many of those other things. But it does, in fact, regardless of your interpretation, regardless of where you land and what your position is, it it does bring us all to the same ending place, to the same landing place, that in Christ we are to live in humility. In Christ we are to live with urgency. In Christ as his church we are to live courageously. And in Christ we are to live for his glory. So as we come into chapter 24 of Matthew, we come there and we should see that this text is the climax of what has just taken place in chapter 23. That over the course of chapter 23, we have heard a prophetic rebuke from Christ himself. We've heard Christ come and called down all of the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes. We heard these seven woe to you statements that Christ has brought. And so what we should see as we come into chapter 24 
And the things that we read there is it is the climactic point of all that has just taken place. It is the disciples wrestling with everything that Jesus has said and everything that, that Jesus has taught them over the course of their ministry. And then in light of this condemnation and this withering fig tree and all of these things that they have now heard. And so as you come into chapter 24, you get the, the disciples wrestling and you get Jesus explaining and, and, and ministering to them into the midst of this confusion and in the midst of this wrestling. And that's where we get the Olivet Discourse. That's where we arrive this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We'll cover chapter 24 in two weeks. And so this morning, we will read through verses, verse 28 together. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. It says in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse one, it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the, of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go to take what is in this house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been seen from the beginning of the world unto now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead away, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. 
They say, look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So Jesus, having taught for an extended period now in the temple, is departing the temple. And he is departing from the temple for the very final time in his ministry. And as he and his disciples are leaving the temple mount, the disciples look back over their shoulders. They can't help but to look back over their shoulders to behold what was certainly one of the great architectural wonders of the ancient world. They look back and they see the temple, Herod's temple, his rebuilding of the temple. And it is built with such splendor and so magnificently that all of that were, would come from different places who did not even love God or know God or know anything about the name of God would see the temple and they would be awestruck by it. The stones of the temple were so enormous, so gargantuan, that still to this day, engineers don't really even understand how it was that they were able to construct a temple as that, with stones as those, without modern cranes and machinery that we know now. And so the disciples, they look back. Because Jesus has just brought utter condemnation down on the temple. Utter condemnation down, not just on the temple, but on the leaders of the temple. And he has said, this temple is coming to ruins. This temple is going down. It is like a withering fig tree. And they look back at the stunning sight with all of its external glory with all of its trappings, with all of its splendor, with all of its majesty. And that temple looks like a place where God would want to be. If there's a place on earth that God would want his presence to dwell among his people, it is in that temple. And so the disciples, they're astounded. They're astounded because Jesus is dropping a bombshell on them. Looking back and, and, and acknowledging its beauty, they, 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 talk, they, uh, they bring it to Jesus' attention and they say, Matthew even writes uh, that they were going back when his disciples came to the point out to the buildings to him and then Jesus answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. These walls appeared impenetrable. This appeared to be an everlasting building for an everlasting people, for the sake of an everlasting God. And Jesus looks to them and he says, your capital building, your white house, your church, all in one, it's going to crumble. It's going to crumble. So much so that the mighty gargantuan stones from which it has been constructed, not a single one of those will still be on top of the other. And in all of its majesty, in all of its glory, and in all of its splendor, it will soon be 
ruins. Now you can imagine for the disciples, you can imagine how, how this would leave them reeling. If I were to come this morning and I were to tell you that I have a word from God and I could convince you that God had genuinely spoken audibly to me and I were to tell you that on this day, God is going to make Washington, D.C. utterly desolate, that he is going to wipe out our Capitol building, our White House, our entire infrastructure of our government. And then all of our churches, all of our houses of worship were going to be decimated. Can you imagine the tone that would be among us this morning? Can you imagine how heavy-hearted we would be? This is where the disciples are, brothers and sisters. This is where the disciples are. And so reeling, they, they begin to ask Jesus some questions. They begin to ask Jesus some questions. And I really think very often that the way this passage has been interpreted is you take these questions and you divide them very neatly and then you kind of go to the discourse, the things that, that Jesus has said and you, you look at those things very neatly according to those questions. But I think to view the questions that neatly, to view the questions that, that segmented as talking about just the temple and, and just the coming of Christ and the end of the age and seeing these things as being entirely separate is to give the disciples too much credit and to misunderstand the gravity of the situation. That in fact, what we have are the, the disciples trying to put together in their minds all the things that they've been hearing. Jesus has been telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to the cross. Jesus went into the temple and he has brought condemnation upon all of the leaders of Israel and all of the worship of Israel. He has called the temple a den of thieves rather than a house of prayer. And all of this is going through the minds of the disciples. All of this is very fresh in the minds of the disciples. And so the disciples are left with, what are we to make of all of this? What are we to make of all of this? So they asked Jesus, Jesus, when is this going to happen? When is this spectacular temple going to crash? And when are you going to return? When are you coming back? Tell us about the end of the age. And so what we see is in their minds, in their minds, there was a, there was a, 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 a bond between the collapse of the temple and the return of Christ, the reign of Christ, the end of the age. And what we have to ask ourselves is why? Why? Why did the disciples bond the collapse and the desolation of the temple with the return of Christ? Because this is the foundation of everything that Jesus is saying here. This is, the, this is the bedrock that Jesus is going to build the entire discourse that he's going to be talking about for the rest of the time of Matthew 24 and 25. And the reason that this, they would have asked this question is that because of their understanding of who the Messiah was. Their, what we might say, misunderstanding of who the Messiah was. Not just them, but all of Israel. Israel believed that the Messiah was to return. You already know this by this time with me, going through Matthew. Israel believed that the Messiah was coming as a political catalyst. That he was going to be the one that was going to reestablish the throne of David to endure forever. That he was going to build Israel into being the final and ultimate superpower of the world. He was going to deliver them from captivity. He was going to conquer all of their enemies. 
And yet Jesus has been saying something very different to them. Jesus has been coming and saying, no, they are going to kill me. No, I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to be buried into the earth. And so I think what we see for the disciples is they hear Jesus talking about the the temple. What they would have associated is the collapse of the temple being the collapse of the old covenant. And the collapse of the old covenant, Christ coming to establish and inaugurate his rule and his reign over the entirety of the world. And so what they're thinking in their minds is, is we're almost there. We're almost there. We've went through just hellacious things walking with Christ and we know there are still hard things yet to come. Christ has told us that. But in their minds, what they're thinking is, is there is a triumphant moment coming soon. There is a triumphant moment coming soon and then we will be vindicated. Think about what it would have been like for those disciples being so closely associated with Christ. Christ was seen as a false teacher and a blasphemer by everybody that mattered in Israel. And here these men were, committing their lives to him, following him day in and day out, observing all of the things that Christ has taught, doing all the things that Christ has told them to do. Christ is going to go to the cross. All of them are going to scatter. And why are they going to scatter? Because in those days, the disciples were associated with the teacher. And if the, if the leader, if the rabbi, if the master was seen as a false prophet teaching false things and he was executed for that, all of the disciples were surely to follow. And so here's what they're thinking. Vindication is coming soon. Vindication is coming soon. That the temple is going to collapse. That the leaders are going to be eliminated. And in the collapse of the temple and the elimination of the leaders, then Christ is going to return. He's going to establish his messianic kingdom. He is going to sit upon the throne of David. And from the throne of David, he is finally going to establish his glorious reign in which he conquers all of our enemies, vanquishes all of our issues, and begins his wondrous reign. So in their minds, they're thinking all of these things are coming to an end soon. And so Jesus, like a surgeon, like a surgeon that comes to you before the surgery, and he says, hey, this is going to be hard. There's going to be a recovery. The recovery is going to be grueling and painful. The surgeon comes to you to say all of those things. Why? Because to, to, to reset your expectations and to calibrate your expectations so that you don't get to the other side of the surgery, feel the pain, and don't believe that there's another day coming, a better day coming. The, the, the surgeon comes to you and he lets you know how hard it's going to be and how painful it's going to be and how difficult it's going to be so that having the right expectations in place of false expectations, you won't be dismayed, you won't be discouraged, you won't be disheartened. And so Jesus comes to his disciples, he speaks to his disciples and he is calibrating their expectations that they might know what the days ahead will hold, that they might know the suffering that they are going to encounter as they follow after him. And so Jesus compares it in verse eight, he compares it to labor pains. 
He says, this is going to be like the pains of childbirth. This is going to be like the labor pains, that you're going to labor and labor and labor. You're going to agonize and agonize and agonize. That there are going to be hard days ahead and sweat on your brow and pain in which you just want to shout, scream, and maybe quit. There's pain coming that's going to make you wonder whether or not this is all worth it, that you are going to be laboring for a while. And what, the way that we should see that Jesus is doing this is he is calibrating the expectations of his disciples. Is we, If you look through verses 1 through 14, this is going to be the, the structure that I preached. Verses 1 through 14, what you see is Jesus starts out by saying, look, there's going to be some, some general pain. There's going to be some, some general pain, some general suffering that, that you are going to suffer and every generation after you is going to suffer. That this is going to last from the time of my resurrection and ascension all the way until my return. He returns back to that same theme in verse, verses 22 through 28. And he's talking about this, this general pains of childbirth, this general laboring that the people of God are going to be going through and battling through. But then right in the middle there, right in the middle, verses 15 to 21, he said, but in the midst of all of these labor pains, in the midst of all of the struggle, in the midst of all of this difficulty, there's going to be a particularly sharp pain. There's going to be a particularly troubling moment when the temple will be made desolate. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about what Jesus says it's because understanding that the disciples, they want to be vindicated quickly. They want all of this to go away quickly. They want Jesus to return and sit upon the throne quickly. And if I were the disciples, I would feel the same way. I would want to go with Jesus in a march of military wonder and military conquest and march the streets of Jerusalem all the way up into the palace, have the crown placed on the head of Christ, have him anointed as the king and all of us hanging out in the courtyards of Jesus. But what does Jesus tell them? That in the midst of this labor, in the midst of these child pains, you're going to be laboring for a long time. This labor is not going to be a quick delivery. This, this, these pains are not going to go away very soon. Think about the, the language that is used here. What's, what's interesting is I've heard many people that I think sometimes may read through it a little bit quickly. Um, they, they go to these passages, they go to verses three through, through uh, eight especially, and they say, look, this is what we see now. This is what we hear now. This is what we have in our world. And so surely Christ is soon to return. But Jesus here is actually saying the opposite. Jesus in verses three through eight is not talking about the imminence of his return. Jesus rather is talking about the delay of his return. That you're going to be in this childbirth. You're going to be laboring. And this is going to take a long time. Listen to, listen to things that he says. All right. So he says that many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and lead many astray. That this is going to be a lot of false Christ. This is going to be a lot of false messiahs. This is going to be a lot of false teachers. It's giving the, the idea that this is going to take, a, this is going to come over a period of time. 
He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and all there will be famines and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the child pains. So think about how long it takes for nations to rise and fall. Think about how long it takes for kings to come and go. Jesus is not saying that this is going to happen imminently. Jesus is not saying that this is going to happen quickly. Jesus is not even saying that this is a sign of the end of the time. Jesus is saying that these are the ordinary functions in a broken society, things that you're going to see and the false teachers are going to come and they're going to interpret these and they're going to say that because of this and this and this, Christ is soon or Christ is over there or in fact, I myself am Christ. And Jesus is saying, don't believe a word of it. That famines and earthquakes are going to come and go. Kings and nations are going to come and go. Hardship and struggle are going to come and go. And yes, they are the result of the futility that our society has been subjected to by him who subjected it. But they are but the ordinary outworkings of a cursed and broken and fallen world. This is going to take a while. Kings and kingdoms are going to come and go. Nations are going to fade away. But this is just the beginning. These are the beginnings of the birth pains that are going to come. In fact, Jesus even emphatically says here, the end is not yet. When you look out and you observe these things and you hear of wars and rumors of war, nations coming and nations going, natural disasters, when you see them, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Do not be deceived. The end is not yet. Yet, I am not bringing a close to all that is coming because you see those things. And so Jesus here is tempering again the expectations of his disciples, isn't he? He's coming and he's saying, look, I, I know that you want all of this to fade away quickly. I know that you want to be vindicated and be able to be seen as prominent and wise men in your world. I know that you want to go and walk with me down the, the, the road of Jerusalem and walk up into the palace and sit there with crowns and robes and royalty. But my brothers, my brothers, our, your way, our way will not be the way of robes and crowns and royalty. Not yet. Our way will not be the way of prominence and prosperity. Our way will not be the way of vindication. Our way will be the way of the cross. I'm going to the cross and all of you are going to follow me there. You know, we're not unlike the disciples, are we? We're not unlike those original disciples. We live in a day today that says that if you believe all of this, it's because you are too weak to be able to deal with the reality that your life means nothing. We live in a day that we wonder how in the world could everybody see and us see this and them not get it, right? 
but they look at us and they believe that, that we are ignorant and they believe that we are naive and they believe that we are old fashioned and they believe that we are backwards. You may have people in your own family and when you begin to talk about God or the things of God, Jesus and the things of Christ, they roll their eyes at you like, what some, some backwoods hick taught you that? And so in the midst of this enlightened and intellectual society, all of us are left as the people of God thinking, Lord, will you not vindicate your people? Will you not vindicate your people? Will you not come and establish a place here on earth where we can prosper, a place here on earth where we can thrive, a place here on earth in which we will not have to deal with the sneers and the rolling eyes and all of the views that we are ignorant, old-fashioned, backwards hicks. Oh Lord, won't you vindicate us? Won't you vindicate us? But what we read in Matthew 24, as Jesus is talking to those original disciples, he is just as clearly talking to us that until he returns, brothers and sisters, our way is not the way of popularity. Our way is not the way of social prominence. Our way is not the way of career advancement. Our way is the way of the cross. Our way is the way of suffering and humiliation. Our way is the way that is in the image of Christ and on his cross we will share in the sufferings of Christ as we wait for the return of Christ in all of his glory. And so brothers and sisters, the triumphalism that many of us find ourselves living in, the expectations that all of us often have that we are entitled to a place that is totally free of all of these types of difficulties and strife, let us recalibrate and reset our expectations with the expectations that Christ has actually given to us. And so Jesus is tempering their expectations and he begins to tell them, there are some things that you will expect. That, that over the generations, as kingdoms come and go, as, as the church is built and the church endures and the church advances, there are some, some markers that you can look for to know that you are in the midst of this childbirth. That you can know as the, as the pains of childbirth come upon you and upon all of those that you love. The first marker that Jesus gives us is he tells us that we're going to be fighting a two-front battle. We're going to be fighting a two-front battle, a physical and a spiritual one. He says, he begins to talk about the false teachers. And in fact, I believe false teachers to be a very prominent reason, a, a prominent uh, point in, that Jesus is making here. He begins it there in verse one. He goes back to it or in verse four, and then he goes back to it in verse 28. And he says that there are going to be men and you're going to be laboring and working and teaching. You're going to be going to the nations. You're going to be sowing the gospel in their hearts. You're going to be laying it on the line and going to the places that you work and telling them the truth about Christ. You're going to gather as the church and sit under the preaching of God's word and endure the, endure the preaching of God's word that you might be made more into God's image. But as hard as you are working for the advancement of the kingdom, as hard as you are working toward these good ends, there are going to be men and women, false teachers, false Christ that are going to be working against you. 
that they are going to be working to undo all of the things that you have done. They're going to be teaching and peddling a gospel that is different than the true gospel, a gospel that is false, a gospel like the one in the temple that is in fact damning. In fact, I think John and, and Andrew talking with the video here in Swaziland and across Africa, we see the prosperity gospel sweeping. In fact, brothers and sisters, it's not just in Africa. It's in Calhoun County and in our community. The prosperity gospel sweeping. Come to Christ and your life will be easier. Come to Christ and your life will be wealthier. Come to Christ and you yourself will be healthier, emotionally healthier, physically healthier. In all of those ways, come to Christ and these things will be made better. And brothers and sisters, this should be expected by us for Christ has said that in this day of childbirth, in this day of of birthing pains, that we will face a spiritual battle against those, against principalities that we can't even see that is working to undo all of the things that we are working to do. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like that? You feel like finally now I'm going to begin walking with Christ. You begin to make real headway in your walk with Christ. You begin to be formed into his image. Your your Bible reading goes up. Your prayer life enhances. And what happens in your life? You come under assault, don't you? You come under assault. You come under assault at your job. You come under assault at your marriage. You come under assault with your friends. You come under assault at your church. You come under assault every single place you go. Why, brothers and sisters? Because we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. We are in the last days, us. And in these last days, it will be characterized by the working of undoing all that God is doing. But he says it's not just not just a spiritual battle, but a physical one. That there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. There are going to be famines and earthquakes. There are going to be difficulties and hardships. You're going to get sick. You're going to get, you're going to get worn down. We're going to have to send young men off to, the, to battle and to fight and to defend freedom, truth, and justice. We're going to have to make headways to extend compassion to widows and to orphans. That every morning and every evening, you're going to wake up and go to bed wondering, what am I going to face today? What am I going to face today? Could it be a car accident? Could it be poverty? Could I lose my job? Could I lose my family? What if my wife has a wreck? What if my husband has a wreck? What if, what if we are attacked today by some unknown enemy? What if terrorists make their way to my community? What if a shooter shows up at my kid's school? And Jesus is saying, this is the two front battle. This is the two front battle that will weary my disciples. This is the two front front battle that every single one of you are going to face, that there is going to be a spiritual battle and a physical battle all the while. The other marker that Jesus gives us here is the persecution of the church. The persecution of the church. 
We live in a day, I think for us, that we typically like to believe that we are absolved from any opportunity or any potential for persecution. But brothers and sisters, that is not realistic. In fact, that is the opposite of what Jesus has taught, that we live in a day, we live in an era of persecution. Now, by the grace of God and the kindness of God and by the sacrifices of tons of men and women that have laid down their lives, we aren't very concerned that we might have to die tomorrow but we don't know what the future holds. And did you know that in fact, in the 20th century, there were more martyrs for the cause of Christ than every other century that had been added up in all of Christian, all, all of Christian history? That if you take every single person that died for the cause of Christ throughout the entirety of Christian history up until the 20th century, they would not equal the number of people that died for Jesus Christ just in the 20th century. And we should not be confused into believing that persecution only pertains to death. Persecution, in fact, pertain, pertains to discrimination and being discriminated at but, but because you are following Jesus and because you love Jesus. Persecution comes from being slandered when other people look down upon you and speak against you and seek to lower your reputation because you are a disciple of Christ and following after Christ. So I think when we think about the way that Matthew, uh, Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven, we think about those narrow and broad paths. In every painting and every picture I've ever seen, the way that that's presented is a fork in the road. That, that you come to this place and there's this fork in the road and that you're either gonna go left or you're gonna go right. You're gonna go the way of Christ, the narrow way, the hard way, the difficult way, or you're gonna go the, the broad way. You're gonna go the way of the world. You're gonna go the way of destruction. And so we have this view that there's these divergent, these divergent paths that we can take. And so if we take the way of Christ, we're really going away from the wide path. But brothers and sisters, that's a false, that's a false idea. You see, the way that it happens is that if you begin to follow after Christ and you begin to walk down the narrow road, you aren't walking down a divergent path. Instead, you're turning from going southbound to going northbound and you're walking to hit the rest of the world head on. The day in and day out, what makes the narrow path so difficult and what makes the narrow path so painful is that it is up, uphill, it is upstream, it is against the current, and it is against the culture. And again and again, the culture comes pounding down on you. So what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? Is this where you find yourself? Do you find yourself hearing of wars and rumors of war? Do you find yourself hearing all of these false teachers and unsure of what to do? Do you find yourself being betrayed by your brother, hated by your brother? Do you find persecution even happening within the life of your own church? Do you find pain coming into your life simply because you're one of my followers? Don't be dismayed. Don't be afraid. This does not mean that I'm out of control. This does not mean that I've lost control. In fact, I'm telling you these things are coming before they come. I know they are coming. I know where they are, but they are a part of my plan. They are a part of my providence and they will serve not to destroy my kingdom, but instead to strengthen, solidify my kingdom. That the persecution of the church will be used ultimately to bring purity to the church. See, don't be discouraged. And don't be beaten down when you feel like the world is turning against the church. Don't be that way. This is what Christ, this is exactly what Christ is warning us against. 
Don't be dismayed and discouraged when you believe that, that the culture is turning against the church. This is simply the birth pains. This is simply what is coming out. But what we see throughout history is every single movement, every single persecution, every single attempt to oppose the church and to destroy the church does not defeat the church, but instead builds up the church and purifies the church. That the Lord takes our hardship. And Peter says it's like gold being purified in the refiner's fire. He comes into the church with these hardships. He come, they come into these church, into our church with all of this opposition. And the Lord does not let the church fall. Instead, the Lord lets the church purify and strengthen and build up. You see, when times are good, when times are good, the seed of the gospel will come. And it will, it will spring up quickly. And there will be apparent fruit in the life of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. And it will spring up, and as long as times are good, and as long as, as things are going as they should, they will be there. But as soon as the opposition comes, as soon as the persecution comes, as soon as the hardship comes, those who are not the elect, those who are not in Christ, will fade away. They will fall back. And what does Jesus say? But those, those who are my disciples... Those who are my disciples, they will endure until the end. One of the things I love that he says in here is he says that, he says that, if, uh, that if, you were, if, if they were able, the false prophets would even lead away the elect. He says that. He says, he says they will attempt to do all of these things with their miraculous signs and their many wonders, and they will lead many away, and if possible, even the elect. And what he is saying there is wonderful. It is powerful. It is life-giving. And that is, it is not possible. It is not possible that if you are in Christ and you are secured in Christ, you may, be, you may feel weak and you may feel defeated and you may feel beaten down and you may get to the end of your rope and wonder, am I just going to give up? But what does he promise? It is not possible that if you are in Christ, you are always in Christ. You are the, vine, you are the branch abiding in the vine and he will not let that branch be broken. It is not possible. So here is the point. Verse 14, read that with me. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. If you have a pen, circle, will be and will. There's, there's two occurrences of the word will there. Will be and will. There is an assurance. There is a certainty that is given to the church here. An assurance and a certainty given to the church that you will be triumphant, that you will be victorious, that my gospel will go to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is telling us even in the midst of birth pains, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of difficulty, we will not be defeated. We will not be taken down. Instead, the church will not be stopped because Jesus cannot be stopped. That Jesus' message and Jesus' mission is going to the ends of the earth and the, and the end will not come until the whole earth hears. And when the whole earth hears, then they will know that the Lord, the one who is risen, the one who is reigning is their Lord. And so brothers and sisters, do not be dismayed. Do not be afraid. Persevere. It may feel like you're struggling. 
And it may feel like you're losing, but brothers and sisters, we are on the right side of history. We are on the winning side. We are not being backed down. We are not being defeated. We are advancing. The kingdom of God is advancing against the gates of hell. And it is taking the the gospel to the ends of the earth because Jesus has said it's so. And so he says, now, in the midst of this, in the midst of these growing pain, in the midst of these birthing pains, there is going to be a particularly sharp pain. There's going to be a particularly sharp pain, a, a difficult pain, and it is going to be the utter desolation of the temple. He brings into memory, he, he quotes from Daniel, where this abomination of desolation appears four different times, and he goes back and he says, Look, there is an old prophecy that is going to be fulfilled again. An old prophecy that's going to be fulfilled again. That one day that what you're going to see is there are going to be the pagans, the Roman army is going to come in their legions. And they're going to surround the temple. They're going to surround all of Jerusalem. And on that day, as they begin to organize themselves and as they begin to come, then you will know that the temple is soon to be made desolate. That one stone is soon to be removed from all of the other stones. And some 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, it happened. Some 40 years, uh, just less than 40 years, in 70 AD, the Roman general by the name of Titus brought his men in to finish what had, he had already started back, or what his dad had started just four years prior. And they came in, and they came in in April, and they surrounded all of Jerusalem. Well, if you think about it, what happening around that time? Passover, right? And so Titus allowed all of these worshipers to come in from all the other reaches of Jerusalem so that the, the, the population of Jerusalem swelled to well over into the millions. But then when the Passover was over, Titus didn't let them come back out. Instead, he set his army to lay siege to the city. And they had 150 foot walls that went around the entirety of the city of Jerusalem. One of the most formidable walls in all of antiquity. And week after week after week, they blockaded the entire city so that they could not get resources and could not get supplies. And they pounded on the walls and pounded on the walls and pounded on the walls. For six months, Rome laid siege to Jerusalem. Famine struck in such a way within that as Jesus said, it had come and it will never be a tribulation just like this one again. It was so great, it is unlike any that have come and it is unlike any that will come again. It is uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he writes that, that mothers began to take their babies and to boil them and to eat them. That men who were attempting to fight began to eat their own defecation because conditions were so poor. And then after six months of laying siege to Jerusalem, Titus and his men finally breach the walls and pour into the cities where they slay over a million Jews that day. Men, women, children. Women were raped before and after they were slain. Those who survived were immediately became slaves of Rome and thousands of them were sent into the midst of the Colosseum where they would be devoured by lions and bears. And so there was a million that was killed that day and then tens of thousands that kept 
continued to be killed in captivity. Josephus writes these words. As the legions charged in, neither persuasion nor threat could check their impetuosity. Passion alone was in command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled by their friends. Many fell among the still hot and smoking ruins of the colonnades and died as miserably as the, as the defeated. As they neared the sanctuary, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's commands and urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The partisans were no longer in a position to help. Everywhere was slaughter and flight. Most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, butchered wherever they were caught. Around the altar, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood, and the bodies of those killed at the tops slithered to the bottom. But you know what else Josephus wrote? Josephus wrote that the Christians weren't there. That before, before Rome laid siege to Jerusalem, that some way, somehow, baffling all of them, the Christians had escaped. And so the Christians did not get slaughtered for the most part. The Christians did not get decimated the way all of the Jews did. Why? They listened to the words of Jesus. They obeyed Christ. And with the abomination of desolation came and began to close in like a vice upon Jerusalem. Many of them fled to various regions and taking with them the good news of the gospel. And so when Jesus says, no, if you're on the roof, don't even come down from the roof. Run across the rooftops to get out of the city. If you're working out in the field, don't even put down and go get your things. Run from the field and get out of the city. The Christians heard, the Christians listened, and they trusted in Christ and obeyed in Christ. Brothers and sisters, how is it that we are to survive in this world? How is it that we are going to make it as we begin to face tomorrow, bringing children into this world? How is it that we can come in the midst of a society that does not uphold the sanctity of life or the sanctity of marriage? How is it that we will survive and make it and press on? It is the same way that they did, by trusting Christ and obeying Christ, by trusting Christ and obeying Christ, that we can persevere and walk in the midst of a darkened society as beaming lights of good news and glory for Jesus Christ, that if we listen to him and we obey him, then we can walk in the midst of a society that hates us and love them back. That if we listen to him and obey them, though the world comes against us and makes us and positions themselves as enemies, we can pray for our enemies and reach our enemies and love our enemies. We can trust Christ and obey Christ, love God, and love our neighbor because we can know this is hard and this is difficult and this is painful, but all of this is but a little while. All of this is temporary because Christ, like a streak of lightning against the sky, will come and not a single person will wonder if this is really him, is this really him? No, like lightning that illuminates the entirety of the sky so that every man, every woman, and every child can look up and see it. 
Christ will sound his trumpet and light up the sky and he will return for his church and all who are found in obedience and all who are found in faith will be delivered. Not just for a little while, not just for a season, but brothers and sisters forever. There will be no more trials. There will be no more tribulation. There will be no more battle. So today I ask you church, do you trust Christ? Are you obeying Christ? That is the answer of living as a light in a darkened age. Trust Christ. Obey Christ. Let's pray together.